Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hi again, everyone, and welcome back to the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. Great to see Tina back with us here on the show and also Rich Lenkoff of Downey & Lenkoff. We begin today's show with a Supreme Court decision on the Second Amendment, which is dividing judges regarding firearm restrictions. You may have seen or heard our next guest from CNN, The New York Times, or Bloomberg. It's Andrew Willinger, Executive Director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law, and also former clerk for Judge William Osteen Jr. Andrew, thank you very much for the time today. Thanks for having me on. So, Andrew, last June, against the backdrop of a series of mass shootings and the 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court said in the Bruin case that Americans have a right to carry firearms in public for self-defense, and it struck down a New York gun law. That decision also set new standards for evaluating the constitutionality of gun laws. Can you tell us a little bit more about this decision and the impact it has had so far on the landscape of firearms restrictions in the U.S.? Sure, happy to. So uh, Bruin was a case about New York's uh, concealed carry licensing law. Um, so the narrow holding in Bruin was that New York could not require applicants to demonstrate some kind of special need in order to obtain a concealed carry permit. Um, and I think that result was was widely expected. Um, but the more consequential part of the decision was how the court got there, um, which is that the court said the reason that New York's law is unconstitutional is because it's inconsistent with American historical tradition. Um, there's not a tradition from around the time of the founding of states restricting public carry in this way, and therefore uh, New York cannot do so today. So that's uh, so that sort of makes uh, gun regulations going forward um, very closely tied to history. Um, if a law implicates the Second Amendment, then the government has to come forward with historical analogs, so laws from the right time in history and the right number of laws to show a tradition of regulating in a similar manner. Otherwise, the law will be struck down as unconstitutional. Um, and what we've seen in the uh, months since Bruin is that courts are really uh, reaching conflicting outcomes on some major pieces of federal criminal law, um, on state laws that have been enacted both pre and post Bruin. Um, and there's really a lot of uh, disagreement among lower court judges about how to implement this test. So that historical tradition of firearm regulation is obviously something that's generating a lot of the debate and a lot of the differences in interpretation um, of this decision. What does it even mean? I, I can't get my head around what that exactly means. And I think a lot of judges are having you know, difficulty with it. But how are um, different jurisdiction supposed to interpret what this historical tradition means, especially when you consider, you know, that a lot of the firearms that are sought to be regulated, like here in Illinois, you know, with the assault rifle ban, weren't around, obviously, back then. So 
any any light you could shed on that would be would be greatly appreciated. Right, and I think you're not you're not alone in in, in being confused. And I think we we've seen some of that come through very palpably in, in some of these decisions. Um, the court doesn't the Supreme Court doesn't really uh, give great guidance on on what constitutes a tradition. How many laws does the government have to come forward with? Where should those laws be from? How close do the historical laws have to resemble the modern ones? Um, we don't we don't get a lot of guidance, and so judges are sort of figuring out figuring that out as they go. Um, as to you know, you mentioned um, sort of the pace of technological change surrounding firearms. And I think that's been a big issue. It will continue to be in some of these cases, especially with assault weapons bans, magazine capacity restrictions, laws like those. Um, and Bruin does say that when you have uh, dramatic technological change or unprecedented societal concerns, that you're supposed to use a more nuanced analysis. It's not really clear what that means, though. And I think, you know, we're seeing some some judges are uh, being very flexible in how they look at the history because of that. Other judges are still requiring a pretty close set of analogs uh, from the historical record. So, Andrew, last month, Illinois Governor Pritzker signed into law the Protect Illinois Communities Act, which is an assault weapons ban and has been subject to quite a bit of legal challenge over the past few weeks. Um, Earlier this month, a federal judge denied a motion trying to block the ban. Tell us more about this and how it impacts where we are right now in terms of the national gun law debate in the wake of Bruin. Sure. So assault weapons bans like the law that was passed in Illinois um, are now on the books in about 10 states. Um, so you have a, a pretty sizable group of states that's, that have these laws. We've seen a couple of them passed um, uh, recently or over the last year. Um, and there really isn't, you know, we haven't seen other than this, this decision from a federal judge in Illinois that upheld the Illinois law, we haven't seen a lot of cases applying Bruin to assault weapons bans. There are a couple of those sort of working their way through the court system. Um, some had actually gone all the way up to the Supreme Court before Bruin and then were sent back down. Um, but it's a really uh, it's a really interesting area. I, I think we'll, we'll probably see lower courts go both ways. Uh, I think we'll see some uh, saying, as this judge did, that there's a tradition of regulating especially dangerous weapons and that that can support laws like this. We may also see judges say that these uh, weapons, the you know, assault weapons or at, at whatever they're defined as in the law, aren't even covered by the Second Amendment because they're especially dangerous and unusual. Um, on the other hand, I think we'll probably see some judges focus on how common they are. Um, or how many people use them, right? There are a lot of these weapons that are in private possession. And so that's another factor. Um, And I think we'll start to see more decisions come out in in the coming months on on other states as well. Well, it's interesting that you say that. We'll wrap with this question, Andrew. I mean, again, I'm, you're the expert on this. And I'm admittedly, you know, uh, very, very unclear about some of this law. But to me, when I saw the Illinois uh, law that was signed in by Pritzker, like it seemed to be obviously in conflict with Bruin and ultimately, you know, subject to um, being overturned by a, a court. Um, you know, by the same token, you would wonder why or how Pritzker or the legislators more specifically would come up with a brand new law in the wake of Bruin, this very high profile decision that wouldn't be able to circumvent that law, right? It would seem obvious that we have Bruin, therefore let's build this legislation, let's draft it in a way that could overcome a court challenge. Again, it's hard to predict exactly what will happen, but 
to me on its face, the Illinois um, band seems to be in direct conflict with Bruin. I think that's certainly one way to look at it. Um, I also, you know, I also think there's uncertainty and, and the court in Bruin, you know, they're not, the, the court did not decide um, a case about the types of weapons that can be banned or, or how, how states can regulate specific classes or categories of weapons. I think we have some clues based on other cases and dissents from some of the justices about how they might view this issue. Um, but I really think there's a lot of uncertainty there. And that's maybe one of the reasons that Illinois felt confident going forward with this law. Again, that's Andrew Willinger, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Andrew, thank you very much for the insight today. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. We could see New York's first death penalty in 60 years. With that, we bring in Rachel Barkaw, law professor at NYU, author of over 20 articles and co-author of Prisoners of Politics, one of the country's leading criminal law casebooks. Rachel, thank you very much for the time today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, last month, Saifulo Saipov, the ISIS-inspired terrorist who intentionally struck and killed eight people on a New York West Side bike path on Halloween in 2017, was convicted on 28 counts of terrorism and murder charges by a Manhattan federal jury. Two weeks ago, his sentencing trial began and the death penalty, as Joe mentioned, is on the table. Tell us more about this case and where we are with the sentencing trial. So it's a death penalty case brought in federal court, uh, which is why the death penalty isn't even is even an option, because if this were a state case in New York, we don't have the death penalty here. Um, so it's a federal case. And I guess the other wrinkle worth mentioning is um, some people might be aware that there's a moratorium that President Biden had said on death penalty cases, but that's in seeking actual executions, and it does not prevent them from seeking death sentences, which is why we're seeing that being pursued in this case. Why is this case different, Professor? The New York hasn't seen a capital punishment in over 60 years. Why is this case different? Well, it's federal, as I said, and so the federal government has the authority to do it. Um, I assume they decided to go ahead and bring it because they see it as a terrorism case. Uh, they've tried to get death penalty in New York in, before at the federal level, uh, but they did not in a prior case. So I do think the federal government does it when it sees 
a particularly, in its view, egregious example of terrorism. Um, but, you know, there are definitely critics who think it shouldn't have even been brought as a capital case in this instance. So, Professor, the um, the the sentencing trial came to a crescendo late last week with emotional testimony from Saipov's father, an emotional breakdown from one victim's relative, um, which actually led to the judge clearing the jury from the courtroom. Um, is it realistic to think that with these types of outbursts and the emotion behind this, that this is not going to influence the jury? They'll be given an instruction, uh, you know, to try to make it clear to them what they are and are not supposed to consider. Realistically speaking, though, I, you know, you can't unhear what you've heard and you can't unsee what you've seen. So I'm sure at some level, the jurors will at least at an emotional level, they won't, I, they may not talk about it when they're in jury deliberations, because I think they'll probably want to take the instructions seriously that way. But I'm sure at some level, it's going to influence what they are thinking about this case. Uh, Professor, how much do you think it weighs upon a jury when they're considering, um, you know, the death penalty, which is obviously the highest form of punishment when you take someone's life. Um, do you think that they go into that deliberation any differently, understanding that they, of course, have to vote unanimously in favor of the death penalty? How does a jury consider that sort of punishment any differently than they would, say, a life sentence or something less than that? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that this jury had to be death qualified, which means when they were seated to be put on the jury, they had to state that they were open to giving the death penalty. So anyone who is unilaterally opposed to capital punishment would not be on this jury. They would have been struck at the outset. So all these people have indicated they have the capacity to give the death sentence in a particular case. Um, in terms of how that plays out in the deliberations here, I think it's safe to say that even if in theory you're open to giving the death penalty in a case, when you're actually faced with the human being who's going to receive it and you see emotional outbursts like the ones that they did last week, you know, I think it weighs heavily on a person's decision, the magnitude of what they're doing. They're effectively authorizing the state to take somebody's life. So I do think that jurors consider all cases to be serious, but in, in other cases, they don't even know the punishment. If this were not a capital case, and this were a case, for example, where he could get life imprisonment, they would not be told that. So, you know, your average juror that sits on a case knows the crime, but they are not told the punishment. And in fact, you know, it's considered by judges to be legal error for lawyers to mention punishment. So in your average case, they don't know uh, what's likely to happen. Capital cases are different that way because they have to be death certified. Um, so I do think they know they know the sentencing is up to them, you know, and that's very different than in other cases where they don't know what the punishment is and it's not their call. So is justice served? I mean, just say for the moment that um, he does get sentenced to death. Um, deterrence is usually one of the leading reasons for the death penalty. Does that does justice get served? I well, in terms of deterrence of the death penalty, there have been lots of studies that it doesn't deter any more than life imprisonment would. So, you know, if, if that's your, it's not like, you know, your kind of would-be crime perpetrator sits and thinks, oh, good, I'll only get life imprisonment. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And it's not until somebody says, oh, but you might be killed that they say no. So it, it, we don't actually get a deterrent benefit from having capital punishment. So if, if that's the measure of whether justice is served,
served, it wouldn't it wouldn't be necessary to have capital punishment here. You would have that from uh, life imprisonment would be just as effective a deterrent. Clearly, this person was not deterred by either. Right. He, he went ahead and committed his crimes, as the jury found, um, based on, you know, his he kind of took the ISIS propaganda hook, line and sinker and was going to go ahead and do this regardless of the punishment. So I think it comes down to a question not so much about deterrence or thinking about the next person and what they might do, um, but whether you think it's retributively just for the state ever to execute someone. And if you do, if you think this case is one where it, it's merited, I, you know, I think a lot of people would say the state should never kill. Um, but for people who hold open the possibility of the death penalty in any given case, then, you know, it's a, it's a question about whether this one is the worst of the worst. And I think for jurors, they're going to have to really think about whether or not this was someone who was manipulated by a terrorist group, but, you know, otherwise, you know, would, wouldn't have done something like this. And, and really the real culpable actors here are ISIS or whether they're going to decide this person, you know, freely chose this path and was committed to it. And therefore, it falls into the category of a serious terrorist offense that, in their estimation, deserves capital punishment. Rachel, last question here on Legal Faceoff. You know, we're uh, this year marks the 30th anniversary of the first World Trade Center attack back in 1993. I'm sure you saw, I don't know if you read, there's an excellent article yesterday in the New York Times about um, that bombing and just an individual who survived not just that attack, but a second attack, you know, the second World Trade Center attack. Really interesting. Um, you know, on the one hand, a Southern District of Manhattan juror, jury, you know, generally would be perceived as fairly liberal, right? Um, New York is, you know, pretty, pretty liberal state. On the other hand, uh, you're dealing with a city that twice in the last 30 years has been victimized by, uh, you know, radical terrorists attacking institutions in their city. So what kind of jury pool do you think we're looking at understanding what you said that they have already been death qualified? Do you think they come into this with some predilections or do you think they're able to put that aside and just deliberate based on the facts presented in this case? I think uh, most jurors do focus on the facts before them. And I think, um, you know, we have every reason to have confidence that this jury will be the same way and they'll take very seriously everything they've heard. Um, and, you know, they, it has to be unanimous. So it, it's just a question of whether all 12 can be convinced. And that's no easy task for the government. Again, that's NYU Law Professor Rachel Barkaw. Rachel, thank you very much for the time today. Sure, thank you. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. Let's bring in our more than a friend to the Legal Face-Off podcast, David Sussler, so that he and Tina Martini can talk about their latest Inside Out column of the Chicago Lawyer Magazine. David Sussler of the Associate General Counsel at National Material. Suss, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. I thought that was like, a, I thought that might have been a Bismarck Key reference or something. More than just a friend? <laughs> no? Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're moving on to insight. It's been a while, Tina and David, since we had you uh, both together to discuss your Inside Out column, which is a staple of the Chicago legal community. Been doing it for many years. Been on our program many times discussing. In fact, that's how we recruited a young, impressionable Tina Martini to the show back when in the early days of podcasting. 
Yes. Back in the day, it was like seven years ago, Rich. Absolutely. Well, your latest episode or your latest uh, article, which is 101. Congratulations on 101. Uh, It is entitled Changing Big Law. Well, well, yeah, that's, that's the, the title we title. gave it. Oh, working title. We'll see yeah, what the magazine the gives it when they publish actually, it. Yeah, this is a sneak peek. This uh, has not yet been published. So it's just right. a special yeah. treat for our LFO <laughs> listeners. Got it. Got it. All right. So uh, preview. That's good. So the subject of this article is how since you both have started your illustrious career, how your respective positions have changed, right? And the whole um sort of perspective behind inside out which is in um chicago lawyer magazine right yes um the whole perspective is uh the perspective of tina who is of course uh, uh outside counsel and david who is in-house counsel and how your roles differ between the two of you so your article uh, at least the preview discusses one of the big transformations from the early days being of course technology Technology has changed both of your positions. David, why don't you start off talking to us about how technology has changed what you do and the service that you provide to your employer? Well, gosh, when I went in-house, um, the, the internet was still relatively new. Email was still relatively new. Um, I, I often say I couldn't do what I do without without the internet. Um, you know, just be, because I'm... I'm I'm a generalist. I have such a broad practice that touches on so many different substantive areas. Just just to be able to access substantive resources online is imperative. And of course, um, the rise of smartphones has uh, the iPhone is what now 13, 14 years old, something that's uh, I've been at National Material for a little over 15 years. So. Uh, that that's not only changed society, it's changed the way we practice in terms of connectivity, in terms of being able to to reach your coworkers and your clients and exchange information at, at lightning speed. And of course, to be tethered 24-7 to your job. <laughs> um, I could keep going on and on, but I'll stop there. Yeah, obviously, Tina, some changes uh, being outside counsel with regards to technology as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what David just mentioned is really critically important. I mean, there's certain things that are unique, I think, to a law firm versus being an in-house legal department. But obviously, um, I think, Rich, it's because you and I talked about it on the show a few weeks ago, the chat GPT, suddenly now everybody's talking about it. I'm sure everybody tuned into that show and now it's, you know, all the rage, but, uh, even our chief information officer was, um, sent an email out to the firm last week, encouraging everybody to try it out to see what the capabilities are. And so I think, the um the big question at this point is how AI um and chat GPT are going to essentially impact our in our industry. I think there are a number of ways that it can. The question is going to be um how much and what are the ethical boundaries of those things. We're hearing a lot about it in the context of schools. I'm sure we'll hear about it in the context of our profession too, but it's all caused an acceleration in the profession that I think just didn't exist before all this technology. What about service? Um, you know, we've talked a lot on 
inside out when you come on our show about this concept of service, customer service, and how, you know, that seems to be a bit of a dying uh, art among young attorneys. Um, certainly, it's something that the three of us, I think, are really heavily focused on when we interact with our clients, be them outside, uh, you know, law firm clients or in-house, David, the people that you report to, uh, which you touch on a little bit in your in your article. But talk to us about how the concept of service has changed or, or maybe it hasn't. Um, but how do you feel about that? Tina, why don't you start? That's a great question, Rich. I, I would say that service now more than ever is critically important. I think it's very important for in-house attorneys who've got internal clients because if you don't service your internal clients, then you don't have a job. Same thing is true for outside counsel. And I'd say with all of the consolidation and acceleration and evolution of the profession of technology, et cetera, that all of it makes um, what we do um, potentially more widgetized. I mean, I would I would say that you can never call a service like what we do a widget, but I do think that there are certain elements of what we do where companies um, are trying and other um, purchasers of our services are trying to do that. And I think client service has emerged as one of the key differentiators between legal service providers. I think, you know, when I first started practicing, there were a million firms and a million lawyers, and there was plenty of work. And given the way that business has evolved, the way that the profession has evolved, um, we're all competing, I think, a bit more um, fiercely for market share and things like service are critically important. I, I'd say it's more important now than it was before. And it's something that the three of us have always thought was important enough to really focus on. Uh, David, what about you? What are your thoughts? That was a great answer, by the way. What, what are your thoughts on service and whether that's involved yeah. or whether that's stayed the same? Um, no, I agree with Tina. I mean, client service, you look at, at the root of what lawyers do is client service. We represent our clients to assist them in navigating through their issues, right? For in-house lawyers, client service is is and remains and always has been of critical importance. And and technology helps a lot in providing client service. And you know, in my role, look, the 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 breadth of issues and this the speed and rapidity at which they fly at me, a lot of what I deal with on a day-to-day basis, we'll never make it to outside counsel because, because the business leaders have a, a question that needs immediate response. Like, David, we have an employee who hasn't shown up for work uh, in, in the last week. We've been trying to reach him. And now he says, uh, well, he's, he's been going to see a doctor, but we don't have any proof. What do we do? What do I do? I need this person. They're critical to operating a machine. What do I do? Right, I have to answer that right away. That's client service. Um, you know, you you get that things. You know, David OSHA showed up at the door. What do we do? How do we handle it? Uh, those those are forms of client service that you got to be available for, and you've got to know how to talk to your people through it. Another another aspect of of client service, for example, is is keeping your people calm and relaxed especially at difficult times when difficult issues come up. That stuff is, is never going to go away. Uh, and and it, is, it is the critical differentiator, as Tina said, uh, for service. And it's the same for in-house 
and outside lawyers. One of the questions you touch on uh, that I really like in your article, the sneak preview that our listeners are getting, our viewers, is if you could do something differently at the start of your career, would you change anything? What advice, in other words, David, would you give to a young, rising David Sussler? You know, I think about this a lot, and I do say in the column that that maybe I would have focused on commercial litigation rather than personal injury when I started out. But ultimately, I always come back to, look, I'm really happy with where I am now and what I do with my career and everything I've done that that, uh, everything I do today is because of what I've done before. Um, So I probably wouldn't change anything. The, the, the best advice I would give to a young David Sussler is, is pay more attention to that little voice inside your head that says you're interested in something other than personal injury and pursue it. Because I used to shut that voice down. So it wasn't until 12 years into my career when I went in-house that I realized how much I enjoy the business world. So maybe I would have done it earlier. All right. Young David Sussler. I'm just trying to... Mental image of that. <laughs> Half of maybe. Um, Dina, uh, no. Same question. If you could start um, your career over, what would you do differently? You know, there's I, there's not that much different that I would do. I I had the good fortune of starting in big law. I've spent my whole career in big law, um, and had some wonderful mentors very early in my career that were really defining for me in terms of the experience I got, the clients I was exposed to. I was um, in three different practice groups within a very early part of my career. So I got transactional experience as a real estate lawyer, did environmental work, and then pivoted to IP. I guess the one thing I think I would do differently is I would probably have worked on developing my network a little bit earlier. At the end of the day, I feel like I got a jump start on having my own practice. I mean, I started having my own clients as an associate, Um, And that at the time was pretty um, unusual. A lot of times people were not even thinking about it until they made partner and making partner back then really was much more of a, you've been practicing for X number of years, you do a great job, therefore you're entitled to partnership. Whereas now it's just a different conversation, especially if you're talking about becoming a capital partner where you need to have business in order to really justify the promotion it's just a different conversation. And that's why I think it's critically important for young attorneys to realize that their future book of business is among the people that they know today and who those people can introduce them to, as well as the clients that they're working for today that may make career transitions to other companies in the future. And it's just the the earlier you start, the easier it is to build a book of business. That is true. All right. Last question here on Legal Face Off. And you know where we're going with this one. It's been a while. But coincidentally, you know, our favorite recording artist, Mr. Bruce Springsteen, happens to be in the early stages of a uh, excellent tour. I've been fortunate enough to see him a couple of times this time, this tour, adding to my 117, but who's counting, Joe, times I've seen Springsteen. So, David, you're counting. You're both Springsteen fanatics like me. Um, we're talking about how things have changed over the course of a long career. Our friend Mr. Springsteen has also had a very long and distinguished career. Question to you, David, to start is what changes, what's the major change you've seen in Bruce Springsteen over the course of his now, what, 55 or so year career? What's the one takeaway that 
you think we've learned from his long career that's different from when he started? Um, well, I stopped the sus. You did. It's an interesting question, and I haven't really thought about it. But his songwriting has changed tremendously over the years, where he's a lot more focused. And uh, I think he writes, I think he writes, I don't want to say more important songs, but songs that that have real, uh, tangible, real world meaning and impact. And, and, and the maturity of his songs, uh, he's, you know, like on Letter to You is uh, it, 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 they're songs that only somebody of his of his age and experience could write. He couldn't have written those songs when he was 23 years old. All um, right. So yeah. he's not afraid to be himself. Yeah. That's yeah. a good answer. Tina? Um, you know, I'd say that it, it's, um, I think there's more of a vulnerability that he shows now, and it, maybe it is a byproduct of his age. But, um, and as David profiled the evolution of his songwriting, I think that there's a certain vulnerability that he conveys in his songwriting and in his performances that I think there wasn't as much of that early in his career. I think that he's, you know, become a lot more humanized. You know, I think he admits to mistakes. I think he admits to not following a linear path. And I find that really, I think that that's part of what makes him very compelling. And he's still as great of a showman today as he was when he was a kid. You know what we can hope for? That's all well stated that Bruce Springsteen perhaps does a cover of Phil Collins, who's one of David Susser's favorites. Phil Collins, iconic <laughs> no. Inside Out from the 80s. So we can play play you out over Springsteen playing Inside Out. That's our that's our goal for the next episode, Joe. I think the biggest difference yeah. of uh, Bruce Springsteen is probably his fan base. I mean, they've gotten way too critical over, uh, over the past way few too years, old. if you ask way me. Way too old also. That's all the time we've got, David David Sussler. Thank you very much for the time. Be sure to check out his latest Inside Out article with our own Tina Martini at ChicagoLawyerMagazine.com. Sussler, thank you for the time. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome into the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Let's get to our two esteemed guests. We'll start with David Yep, Vice President and Chief Revenue Officer of Triune Health Group. David, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here with you all. Along with Katie Mares, keynote speaker, brand experience expert, and author. Check out her book, Custom Her Experience, 
Also find out more at katiemaris.com. Katie, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. All right, Tina, our first topic is one we've been covering for some time now, the double murder trial that we've been following. And Alex Murdaugh admits to lying, but denies killing his wife and son. Yeah, Joe. So there's so much to unpack here. So we're not really going to be able to do it justice. But this murder trial has been going on now for six weeks. And it hit an interesting crescendo late last week when after calling dozens of witnesses and some really interesting evidence being presented, the South Carolina jury that's hearing the murder trial heard from Alex Murdaugh himself as he took the stand in his own defense which, as we know here, as lawyers, as well as discussions we've had on the show for many years, that rarely does that happen in a criminal trial. Um, but, you know, many legal experts say that he really didn't have much of a choice, um, given some of the damning testimony and evidence leading up to his testimony. So, as Joe mentioned, he's standing trial for the 2021 murder of his wife and son, which took place on their property next to their kennels. And shockingly, late last week, Murdaugh admitted during his testimony that he's done a lot of lying, um, including where he was the night of the murders, um, about the millions of dollars that he absconded and other financial crimes that he's committed. Um, but he claims against that backdrop, he most certainly is not a murderer. In very emotional testimony, he claimed that the lying was a result of um, his drug-induced paranoid thinking and trying to cover up the root cause of these financial crimes that he committed, which was his opioid addiction. Prosecutors claim that Murdaugh is the prime suspect and that his motive was trying to prevent these other crimes from being uncovered and to deflect attention from his other wrongdoings in an attempt to garner sympathy um, for his wife and for his son being murdered. Uh, Murdaugh is clearly a highly skilled lawyer, knew what he was doing. Um, and, you know, he knew that he had very damning facts and evidence that he had to contend with, including um, clips from his own son's phone a few minutes before the murders, where it was made very clear that Murdaugh was there, notwithstanding what Murdaugh had said earlier. He reworked the story to say that he actually was there right up until the killings and then left the, his his wife and son at the um, kennels to go lie down and then to go see his ailing mother. Interesting, earlier today, two crime scene experts for the defense raised a two-shooter theory and disagreed with the prosecution's expert about how close um, the shooter was and at what angle both his wife and son were shot. They also claimed that given how likely it was that the shooter who shot Paul Murdaugh's son would have been at the time, that it was very likely that shooter would have been injured and it would have taken that shooter some time to recover. The judge also ruled today that the jury will go on a field trip to the crime scene and closing arguments may happen as early as this coming Wednesday. Um, you know, Rich, I find this whole thing and have found it since the beginning fascinating, but all Murdaugh needs to do is create um, reasonable doubt with one juror, and uh, that's all it takes. Yeah, we just talked about that with our professor discussing the death penalty case in Manhattan, right? That all you really need, and people don't necessarily always think of it this way when you think of these trials, but really all you're doing as a defense attorney is zeroing in on one juror. You don't know who that is, obviously, but you need one person 
to have an inkling really of reasonable doubt. That's a very, you know, that's not the hardest thing to do really when you consider all these different theories. But I've been fascinated like you have been and really watched a lot of it over the weekend, actually. Um, I caught up on some of the testimony. I find this guy, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by him. The way he speaks, it's this like, you know, Southern gentleman thing. Uh, he's doing a good job. I mean, I think objectively he's controlling the dynamic or he was controlling when he was testifying. You know, I don't think the prosecutor has done a very good job. And certainly one rule in cross-examination, particularly in a high profile murder case that the world is watching is like, you got to control the dynamic, you know, don't let the defendant control. If you remember in the other high profile case, we covered uh, extensively the Johnny Depp uh, trial, his attorney who got a lot of acclaim uh, Camille Vasquez, she was on top of things. She was like objecting a lot. She was controlling. There was no question that she was in charge. This is the opposite. When I'm watching the prosecutor cross-examine the defendant and a cross-examination by nature, you should know all the answers and you should be leading. This guy's letting Murtaugh lead. Murtaugh's really controlling the vibe. Not to say he's convincing everyone, but I think he's doing a pretty good job. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. But Katie, Dave, I don't know, Katie, if you're if you're following this, if it's getting a lot of attention. In Canada, I know you're a, a global thought leader, but what's what's your take on this? And, you know, in particular, whether you think it's compelling to hear a, a you know, a, an accused murderer speak and whether that might sway someone or is it better to just keep your mouth shut as a lot of these high profile defendants do? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> ladies, ladies first, go for it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I am. I'm not following too much, but, and it's not all over the news in Canada. Um, I mean, a, a lot of folks watch it. I'm, I'm actually the type of gal that likes to bury her head in the sand a little, a little, cause I can't affect the, all the change, but in reading the article and reading what's going on and catching up on it, I actually do think it was a smart play for him to be on the stand, um, you know, being, as convincing as he is and um, manipulative, if I can use that word, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so he is calling the shots. And I think having that control is, is probably, I mean, he's already, from what I see, he's got so many other um, counts of fraudulent everything that he's going to end up behind bars anyway. So it doesn't really matter, but he's definitely manipulative enough to call the shots. So I, I actually don't think it was a, a poor decision at all. Well, it's a great point, you know, and Tina, you mentioned this as well. He is actually charged with like, I think almost a hundred or so other crimes. Yeah. And David, you know, jurors are supposed to not consider these other crimes in deciding whether he's a murderer. In fact, a lot of judges would not have left this evidence in of his other alleged crimes, these financial improprieties, which he's admitted to. This judge let it in. Um, do you think a juror or the jury in this case would be swayed by the fact that he's admitted to lying, stealing from people he loves, right? Or do you think, well, the fact that he admitted to all that might mean that he's actually innocent in this bigger charge of, of murder? I think you can't not take it into consideration. And I mean, you know, watching it and watching his brilliance and he, he is sustaining sort of this whole web of lies, you know, uh, the, the tangled, the tangled web that he's woven. And it, it kind of struck me when he talked about how he originally lied to the police and he's blaming it on this paranoia that came from opioids. I'm kind of like, huh, for someone who's so brilliant, it seemed kind of shocking to me that that would have such an adverse effect on him and, and kind of bring him to misspeak so clearly. So it certainly created a contradiction in my mind, someone who clearly knows the system, he knows how to work it. He's been working it advantageously financially for so long. And all of a sudden, um, you know, his opioids are causing paranoia in him and, and leading him to mislead and, and speak differently, which he's recanted from recently. So 
Um, I, I don't think you can't consider all the other pieces of who this person is. Rich, I'm wondering if we'll see a rise in the housing market for homes near golf courses after one family is now $5 million richer after a trial regarding golf ball damage. Yeah, what's 651 golf balls worth, Joe? Apparently, in, outside of Boston, $5 million bucks. Um, well, who's hitting them? Yeah, exactly. This family successfully recovered, as you mentioned, $5 million. Their house was pummeled, they alleged, with these golf balls. They were on the 15th near the 15th hole. And there's no question that these golf balls were, you know, coming into their house, breaking glass, coming to their wall. Um, but, you know, what's interesting in this case is they sued again, and this is a, what, 3,000 square foot home. Uh, they bought it for $750,000. And much of the 5 million, I think 4 million was for uh, emotional distress, right? So on the one hand, you could see this as I see it as a defense lawyer who defends a lot against a lot of, questionable claims, let's call it uh, generously questionable, um, as, you know, uh, our jury system run amok, our, our court system run amok when you can get $5 million for emotional distress when you live next to a golf course, right? Like, have you heard of the term caveat emptor? That's a Latin for let the buyer beware. What did you think would happen? I would, I would ask the jury or these people. When you bought a house on the 15th hole, now they allege that there is a design defect that, you know, was designed improperly. The golf course did, Tina, try to build some trees to try to remedy this, but I would not, if I was the judge, let this lawsuit see the light of day, right? I mean, when you buy a house on the golf course, you're doing so because you like being, you know, on the majesty of the fairways and all that, right? Well, part of that is the reality of that there's risk involved, so... I think, now, it should be said this uh, uh, verdict was either reduced or um, overturned on appeal, but not for not because it was too much. It was a, another issue with a jury with a judge instruction, but it was reduced, but still still nuts, in my opinion. Well, you know, what's interesting is, I, I mean, I, I agree with you to a point. I think there were a couple things going on in this case that made it a little bit different. Um, my understanding is that golf courses that have folks that build houses around usually have easements, et cetera, that enable them to um, essentially have the right to not have to deal with lawsuits like this um, because you're sort of coming to the nuisance, so to speak. But I think there were there was something about some representation that may have been made during the course of the purchasing discussions where there was more of a, um, I mean, I, I think that they actually said that this was not going to be an issue at all, when in fact, the way that the course was designed um, was actually um, more likely that, you know, with respect to the distance, the angle and, and so forth. So I think that there was some concern about potential misrepresentation here. Um, and also, I mean, there were hundreds of golf balls, like, I don't know how many hundreds it was, but there were hundreds of golf 651. balls. 651. Yes. Which to me, I mean, even if you come to the nuisance, I think that's pretty, um, remarkable. So there were a couple of things that made this one a little bit different, Rich. Well, sell the house, Dave. I mean, sell, sell the damn house. Now the attorney said they couldn't sell it because of this problem, you know? So I don't know, drop the price, sell the house. There's a, there's a buyer for everything. Go away. I was just shocked by the fact that the um, the owner of the the course is also the owner who developed the lot, which kind of you know made me wonder how that how, how you kind of figure that out. You know, he clearly doesn't have his own best interest. I mean, if I was the one hitting those golf balls, I would be where 
for those poor homeowners. But you know, that kind of created an interesting conflict of interest for me. It's like, how do you how do you design both things and then not take into consideration that you're damaging the own house that you designed? Yeah. Katie, is this the right decision or do you think this is a little overdone? I mean, I think it's a little extreme, but they did make a ton of effort according, you know, to what was laid out to, to try to remedy it before it got to this point. So, you know, but it was the poor design. I mean, they had a young couple with kids. I, I get it. The, the distress is real if you can't go into your backyard and, and, and let them out to play. But I think it's a bit absurd. Um, the amount that's, that's for darn sure. So I, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have let it see the light of day. I would have settled. I wouldn't have brought it to a trial. That's for sure. It would not happen in Canada. In Canada, no. <laughs> people are way nicer there. Just settle things over. You know, maple syrup, Joe. Yes, and, there you go. <laughs> or, or they're just hitting hockey pucks at your at your house, and then that's a lot. That would much, be that'd be a lot a lot larger hole in your wall yes. in your window. That's for sure. Yes, a lot more damage there. Maybe uh-huh. we should just change the metaphor to those in glass houses shouldn't live next to golf courses. Um, let's move on to the next segment, Rich, uh, and it's the whopping of legal problems that George Santos has. Yeah, our friend George Santos, who. Uh, we're trying to get on the show, right, Tina? We'll get him on one of these days. But this is uh, a New York uh, member of the House of Representatives. And uh, ever since he got into office, he, his many, many lies that he told in getting there have been exposed. And the latest one, and the reason we're talking about it on legal face-off, is because he lied to a judge, Tina, uh, allegedly. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to, like, lie about, you know, your do- this dog that he allegedly rescued. and. You know, whether you're a drag queen, that's another allegation that he's denied or that he, um, yeah, uh, Yvonne said that he's already been on the show. That's a good one. George Santos has alleged that he's been on our show before. You know, but it's another thing, Tina, when you lie to a judge, we're lawyers. We try not to lie to judges ever because that's an ethical violation. Um, There's a lot of other legal problems that he has got himself into by, you know, he's being investigated by, I think, seven different committees, many of which allege that he broke the law, campaign finance law, for example, um, but not good to lie to a judge. I saw him though the other day with Piers Morgan, and uh, he seemed to have an answer for almost everything. But no, no. What are your thoughts? I, I think we've just scratched the surface in terms of the lying that he's done, and you know, I think that the Republicans are in a really sticky situation here. Um, I understand the reason why they want to be sort of protective of his seat and so forth. But I think we're rapidly approaching the point where the nature of of what he's lied about and the scrutiny he's being given because of the lies, it's going to get to a tipping point pretty quickly here. Yeah, but what what exactly is that tipping point? I mean, I follow so many political races and, you know, once you start digging into who somebody was before politics, then it's just a question of which headlines grab the spotlight and which ones don't. I, I, I wish there were a tipping point. I wish there were a way to say, like, so much is too much and so much is not enough. But the reality is, is like we it would be great if we could actually judge politicians on what they do while they're in office, as opposed to this you know desire to go in and dig up. Because I, I feel like then it's just a question of who gets control of the headlines. You know, where Where is that tipping point exactly? Yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, the, I understand why people never learn. Like, you know, it, just just admit to it. People are generally pretty forgiving Right. But it's the cover up. It's the lying. It's the lying on top of the line that really gets people. Right. So if Santos were to come out from the beginning and say, 
listen, yes, I made up some stuff. I exaggerated. I even lied because I didn't think my qualifications were good enough to stand on their own. But give me a chance. I, 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 you know, would like your forgiveness. People would generally, you know, maybe slap them on the wrist and then move on. But it's a constant. Then he, would, then he, then he <laughs> wouldn't be in politics, at least not American That's politics, Katie. That's exactly true. That's exactly true. I don't know. Any different up in Canada, Katie, with this fly in Canada? No. Well, gosh, everything flies in Canada. Have you have you seen this stuff on Trudeau? I mean, come on. Um, it's uh, I think that if you're if you're once a liar, you're always a liar, in my opinion. So you talk about digging up um, stuff in their past. Well, that's the past is usually very indicative of who that person's character is and what they're going to do in the future, unless they've made some huge shift, which we're all capable of doing. Don't get me wrong. But when you're in politics, I would say it's a complete indicator of who they are. So I, I would keep digging and I wouldn't have someone like that in office, in my opinion, have a seat, but that's just, that's what my thought is. Tina, art or not art? That's the question for these Birkin bags. So everyone in the intellectual property world, which as many listeners know, happens to be my world and beyond is talking about the decision that came down a couple of weeks ago in the lawsuit that Fashion House Hermes filed against NFT artist Mason Rothschild over the NFT project that he called Meta Birkins. And this case is one of the first to address intellectual property rights in the metaverse, which is why everyone's watching. The Meta Birkins were digital versions of Hermes' very well-known and very expensive Birkin handbag. And his versions included variations of the bags that showed things like mature fetuses inside them. One had mammoth tusks. Another one had the Grinch's shaggy green fur. And another one had smiley emojis. In the lawsuit, Hermes alleged that its Birkin trademark was being diluted and therefore harmed, and that potential consumers might be fooled into buying these NFTs thinking that they were affiliated with Hermes. The critical issue in this case was whether the NFTs would be considered art protected by the First Amendment or if they would be treated more like products. And if treated more like products, that would mean that the analysis with respect to the use of Birkins and the depiction of the bags would be much more of a straight up trademark analysis on things like dilution and likelihood of confusion. The Manhattan federal jury found that these NFTs did not constitute protected speech. They were not protected by the First Amendment and that Rothschild had infringed Hermes's trademark rights and awarded it a little over $130,000 in total damages. Now, we could spend hours dissecting this decision, especially if we were all IP lawyers. Um, there were a few interesting factors that were pretty important in how this case turned out. First, the fact that he used the Birkin's name, I think, made this an easier case of trademark infringement. Um, there is a lot to be said and, and pundits are saying that the NFTs and the market for them was um, was really in large part because of this unauthorized use of the Birkin name. And people at least thought that they that the, this use evoked Hermes um, and some actually believed that they were tied to Hermes. These NFTs were apparently going for about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars and there was about a million dollars in sales of these NFTs. 
Um, whereas the real ones, the real Birkins um, are made by hand and are many thousands of dollars. And a few of them have actually been auctioned off for several hundred thousand dollars. And apparently the Birkins market is about $100 million in sales each year. Um, the defense tried to pay a sympathetic picture of this artist um, and said that his free speech rights um, were being infringed and that he was just trying to make a commentary about the people who buy Birkins bags. Um, whereas Hermes presented evidence um, trying to demonstrate that he was really just trying to capitalize off of their brand. Um, you know, Rich, this case is obviously getting a lot of attention because um, the NFT market is still, while it's down, it's still very popular. And it's this is an area of law IP that, you know, is trying to keep up with how quickly the NFT and technology is emerging. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this case gets followed and some of the other cases that are currently pending. Well, part of the... Uh... Award also, Tina, was for cyber squatting, a smaller amount. I think it was $23,000. Yeah, that. that's because he had registered the Meta Birkins um, domain name. Yeah, which is incredibly significant, in my opinion, because that's a massive problem, too. I mean, that's the phenomenon where people just basically grab a domain name um, and then either you know use it or try to sell it back to the legitimate user. And that's such a huge market. Um, and I think that's the right move. I mean, I'm not so sure I agree with the award. But if I of any part of the award, I, I do like that one because that's a huge problem. And all you're doing is literally trying to confuse people or, you know, uh, blackmail the legitimate holder of the IP into paying you a lot of money for something they worked hard on. So I don't I, I like that part of it. But as for the, you know, the rest of the award, I mean, it's the ultimate, you know, sort of battle between uh, the First Amendment and arts and commerce. Right. And that's something that's a very difficult balance. Um, it will certainly, I believe, have a bit of a chilling effect on, you know, people who want to uh, parody, you know, brands or, or, you know, I don't know that there's such a big difference between this, Tina, and like Andy Warhol famously using Campbell's soup, you know, in his art. So. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's a very slippery slope, Rich. I mean, on the domain name issue, I do a ton of enforcement in that space and, had he been successful on the First Amendment issue, then I think we would have maybe seen a different result on the cyber squatting. Um, I mean, that's something that I have to counsel clients a lot on is that just because a domain name has your brand doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, a, you know, a ripe for a cyber squatting case because there are numerous instances where a First Amendment use of somebody else's brand in the context of a domain name, for example, can actually be permitted under the law. So it's a very um, it's a very nuanced um, landscape and it's one that continues to emerge. And I find it very interesting. David, I saw one uh, Birkin bag online for five hundred and twenty seven thousand dollars, not a piece of art, an actual bag. So most you, you would spend on something like that. Tell our listeners. What's the most one that? Yeah. yeah, hang on. Let me get the what's the link for that one? My wife's birthday is coming up. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. I mean, to your old point about the Campbell soup, that's exactly where my head went to. It's like how you know we have so many issues, at least in the US, you know, these these conflicts of First Amendment. What are you allowed to say? What are you not allowed to say in the metaverse? You know, my mind went there, especially I don't know if there's been as high a profile case with regards to the real estate, because you know that they're going and buying New York Times. You know the square, the Times Square. Sorry, in in the metaverse, 
And then right. now leasing out this space. And so what are you allowed to do? What are you not? It's the Wild West. And I think it was fascinating to see such a high profile name. Uh, but I, I would find it hard to believe that he was not taking advantage of Birkin for clickbait and, you know, to get people behind it, just knowing the, the name is there. Danny, do you have a Birkin? I do not have a Birkin. No, I have many other designer bags, but not a Birkin. No. Did you have a Birkin? No way. Not your thing. No way. The, the, no, no, but the commotion of how much they cost wouldn't be as prominent if they led it with, but it was 30% off. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always, oh, if it's 30% off, how much was it? Oh, it was 30% off. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. All right, Rich, let's not waste any more time. Let's get to the Winnie, Winnie the Pooh murder movie. And we talked about this before, a movie called Blood and Honey. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey is the title of the film. And uh, it's a new release. It's made... I think on a $200,000 budget, it's made about $5 million so far, which is an incredible return for a small independent horror film. Um, you know, what's interesting about this case is uh, that they are using Winnie the Pooh, certainly the character name. They're using some imagery from Winnie the Pooh. You might think, and they're using it as a, as a, in a horror film, right? Winnie the Pooh, the, the, the protagonist here, along with uh, either Tigger or, or I, I think it's Tigger. Eeyore, I think. Isn't it Piglet? One of them is dead in the in the movie. You know, they killed one of them. I don't want to. Spoiler alert. Well, I know, but uh, anyway, they're using two characters from the uh, from the book. Now, the book came out before the Disney manifestation of it, which is really a key point, right? So you might wonder, David, Katie, how they can use um winnie the pooh and these other iconic characters in such a non-family friendly way when we all know winnie the pooh is a you know uh hero of children well the answer is because without getting too much in the weeds um once a character like this has entered the public domain it's accessible to anyone right and uh depending on when the first uh you know use of that character was uh uh, decides how long uh, after the death of the author uh, or the first incarnation of it you can use. Well, that period has expired, and by the way, is expiring for lots of other Disney characters coming up. Mickey Mouse is coming up in the public domain soon. Now, if you look at Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, uh, he's not wearing, for example, the Winnie the Pooh trademark, you know, right overalls. That's because that's a Disney thing. So once uh, Disney started to interpret these characters like, you know, the grim fairy tales, for example, then they become different. Then it's much more questionable as to whether you can use them. But this is perfectly legal, as we covered in, in a past show, um, much to the chagrin of many children the world over. David, uh, what, what are your thoughts on a, uh, uh, a serial killer version of Winnie the Pooh? I'm all in. Now, I, I, you know, I struggle to see I, I struggle to see the hype and why this would be such a big deal for people. And I, I kind of resonate with the comments. Some of I've seen, you know, the the pundits saying, hey, why why the big deal? You don't have to watch it if you don't want to. I think in every iteration of art and storytelling, you see multiple different ways of telling the same story about the same person. I mean, from the from the legends of old to the, you know, the Greek tragedies, you you take the same story and you tell it in a different way. And I think you see in all modern cinematography, you take the same Batman or Superman or any any superhero and you tell that story in a multiplicity of ways. If you are not into horror, which I'm not, then don't go see the scary Winnie the Pooh. But, you know, the idea of saying, hey, this is such an issue and you shouldn't take it and turn it into something else. 
I think that's contrary to the very nature of storytelling in which an artist tells a story the way that they see it and the way that, you know, it resonates with them to a particular audience. Yeah. I, for one, am satisfied that the possibility of Winnie the Pooh being a murderer is finally getting exposed as it rightly should. Right. Uh, Rich, uh, some legal experts are saying that Fox could be in some hot water based on their actions during the last presidential race. Yeah, I mean, the Dominion lawsuit, this is the uh, voting machine lawsuit that is suing Fox News, Tina, uh, for defamation uh, as a result of the allegations that the uh, boxes were faulty and were involved in this, you know, uh, uh, this plot to um, steal the election away from Donald Trump. Well, uh, Dominion turned around and sued for defamation. And what's different in this case is the amount of evidence that has been uncovered as a result of discovery in this lawsuit, that perhaps there was really, um, you know, uh, an effort by Fox News. The lawsuit is against Fox News, as Joe mentioned. And perhaps there was an effort to actually, um, you know, uh, disseminate wrongful information. Because what we've learned from discovery is that while a lot of Fox News personalities were on air discussing the potential of a stolen election, in reality, there was conversations in the form of texts and emails and some oral discussions between some high-level people, including Rupert Murdoch, right, who runs Fox Corporation, um, uh, Laura Ingraham, um, a lot of the on-air personalities of Fox were saying behind the scenes that they doubted these claims, that some of the people putting forth these claims were crazy and were conspiracy theorists. So the bottom line is behind the scenes, these people were saying what a lot of us were saying, which is there's no merit to these claims. There's no evidence of a stolen election. Yet on the air, they went forth and talked about how there was some improprieties, especially including Dominion. Now, what that might lead to in this case, Tina, is a finding that there's actual malice. In order to prove defamation um, with high-profile individuals like a file or companies like a Fox News, you have to prove that they had actual malice, not just that they were negligent in saying these things, these allegedly defamatory things but they actually knew what they were saying was wrong and said it anyway. It's often impossible. It's generally impossible to come up with that evidence because, you know, how are you going to find that? In this case, there might be enough smoking gun evidence to really find that against Fox News. Yeah, I agree, Rich. Um, I just, this just reminds me of my first amendment class. And, you know, this comes up in my practice once in a while. And it is a really tough standard to me. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I would think that folks would rather settle this than have this continue to go down this path. And I'm, you know, what I saw is that Fox is refuting it and you would expect that they would. Um, But, you know, this is definitely um, one of the stranger developments that um, I don't think we were expecting to see. Yeah, Katie, what the uh, filing revealed is that, like I said, Rupert Murdoch was doubting these claims. He said that Trump's claims were, quote, really crazy stuff. And then Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham, some of the biggest names on Fox, were all mocking uh, the Trump attorney and some other people in their camp. Does this surprise you? Does it dismay you that the media would, you know, uh, convey this while knowing, you know, the truth? behind the scenes? No, it's not surprising. Um, You know, you go back to, you know, looking at what politicians do in general. I mean, it's indicative of who they are and and anybody, 
anybody that has a goal wants to achieve something's going to do what they need to do to achieve it. So no, it doesn't surprise me at all. And, um, I mean, everybody has their opinion. They've just set it offline versus online. And, uh, and, and so, no, it does not surprise me at all. This is what had happened, happened with, uh, the great Peter Mansbridge, Joe, up in uh, on the CBC. Of course not. No, not, a, not, not a reference that you get. Do you know you should know the CBC, Joe? All the Canadians that you hang around with, the Blackhawks. Uh, I was I was very surprised. All the sports nations that they have up there. It's it's amazing. You get like six different options. Like here, you get you get two ESPNs, but there's like six different oh, yeah. SNs up there. Absolutely. Now, granted, they're all still wearing oversized suits and talking about topics <laughs> 10 years ago, but well, that's that's aside from the point. Uh, Tina, usually when the Real Housewives move their lips, it's just a bunch of gibberish. But based on the name of their podcast, Eminem is suing a few of them. Yeah, Joe. So um, as we cover on this podcast frequently, celebrities sometimes will sue other people um, when they think their brand is being tarnished. And the latest with Eminem is that he filed a trademark opposition um, in the trademark office in the United States, which is essentially a formal objection against a trademark application um, that some of the Real Housewives of the Potomac um, filed for the mark Reasonably Shady. It's for various merchandising items that are tied to their podcast. As many Eminem fans know, for about 25 years now, Eminem has gone by the moniker Slim Shady. Um, he has several trademark registrations for various merchandising under the name Slim Shady. And Eminem claims that reasonably shady is likely to cause confusion with his Slim Shady moniker and brand. And it's that that reasonably shady will actually damage his brand. What's interesting is that this podcast is nothing to sneeze at. It has over 5 million downloads. So Rich, almost as many as Legal Faceoff, and was actually the subject of a scandal um, involving one of the stars sharing information about her husband's infidelity and, and sneak previewing that on the podcast rather than on the show. So there's been some chatter about this podcast too. So the question is whether Eminem is actually concerned about this potential blowback on his brand or if he's just trying to make a buck. But usually these types of objections end up settling. Eminem actually previously filed an objection against another trademark application, but that one was against a new site that named themselves Slim Shady Politics. So Understandably, that comes a little bit closer to home and his moniker Slim Shady than Reasonably Shady. There are a lot of names out there protected by the trademark office that have Shady in them. So my guess is that this one's going to settle probably just like most of the others. And Eminem is one of a fine line of celebrities that have had trademark objections over the years. Paris Hilton, 15 years ago, had to sue Hallmark over trying to create a card line using that's hot 50 cent is another one who got into it with taco bell who um when they used in an ad campaign a reference to 50 cent our very own former president donald trump actually sued cafe press when they started making t-shirts and other products with make america great again and then there's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who everybody knows is a very famous uh, professional basketball legend, 
who went after the NFL player who tried to go by the same name. They settled and Sharman Shah, who was trying to be the other Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, ended up going by Abdul Kareem Al-Jabbar. So, Rich, um, you know, there's a fine history of celebrities developing monikers and suing other people. And Eminem is just one of many. Well, Eminem's lawyers are in good shape because here's some other lawsuits that Marshall Mathers has been involved in uh, over the years. In, in 99, his mom, Debbie Mathers, sued him for $10 million, saying that he slandered her, calling her a drug addict in the, the Slim Shady LP. In 2005, my friends, uh, his uncle and aunt sued him in Michigan, saying that he promised them $350,000 for a house and maintenance. In 2007, his music publishing company sued Apple, saying that they were not authorized to negotiate a deal to download his music. There's way more. There's one in 2012 where a homeless guy said that uh, Eminem stole his idea for a Super Bowl co uh, commercial. You know, the famous Super Bowl commercial during the, the we saw. And then uh, there's another couple ones involving music publishing in New Zealand. But, um, yeah, good gig for uh, his lawyers, Katie. Do, do you, are you an Eminem fan? What? You know the question I'm going to ask in a second, Joe, so get ready. You better start Googling. But, uh, Katie, is there any risk of anyone who's listening to this podcast of being confused or profiting on the brand of Eminem? Or is this just a silly, another silly? Well, I think this is just ridiculous. And um, I think it's just he's no not popular anymore. He's looking for a buck and he's trying to find a way to ride the coattails. So even if he does settles with next to nothing, he's gotten the publicity he needs to do something. I would, I would um, guess that he's got something, whether it's an item of clothing, uh, whether it is a new um, album or a new release is going to be coming out soon. So I would, I would think that it's just for him to get back in the media. I think it's ridiculous. You heard it here first, Dave. Eminem is over for Katie. What do you got? I didn't hear it. I I, I pulled. Wait, I'm going to get sued now. <laughs> I pulled a patient Katie book. I, I stuck my head in the sand and pretended she didn't say that. <laughs> I'm going to get sued now. <laughs> yeah. I am dearly well, hoping. One of our most not... rapid listeners. Yeah. I'm dearly uh, hoping. By the way, Joe, you the are you in a back cave? Joe, are you in a back cave? <laughs> no, I'm at the WGN studios. And uh, every once in a while, when I don't move, the sensor light goes off. So that's uh, why I'm doing okay. some calisthenics out here every once in a while. I thought you're fighting off moths or something. All right. Sorry. <laughs> no, thank, thankfully, no. Dave, last word on the Eminem story. No, I'm just hoping it wasn't him. I'm hoping it's his lawyers that are after something. You know, uh, I, I could I could get behind reasonably Birkin, someone suing, or reasonably Jay Z, but shady. I, I don't I don't think you can own that word. So I'm I'm dearly hoping this wasn't my man Slim, that this is done by his lawyers who are you know, Katie. Maybe they're just desperate. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they haven't had a lawsuit in a while. Oh, so yeah, like, we there need, you go. That's we need something to for do. something. That's okay. All right. We're going around the horns to finish off. Get to know our. Uh, guess a little bit more. We'll start off with David, of course. You're the unlucky. Actually, maybe probably actually in this case, lucky. Name us your favorite uh, Eminem song of all time, David. Why don't you start us off with Not Afraid? Not Afraid. There you go. And he's not afraid to tell us that one. Katie, favorite Eminem song? Oh, gosh. I have no idea. Come <laughs> back to We'll come no. back to Katie. After Whoa. You're, you're going to bash Eminem and you don't even know a yeah. song by him? No, I don't. I I, oh. I know his movie Eight Mile, and um, if a song came on, I would yeah. know. But I uh, Eight Mile is a song from that. Uh, it uh, is. Tina, favorite uh, Eminem song? 
Don't listen to him. Oh my God. What kind of crowd do we have here, Joe? Hey, I'm yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah, well, Rich, I'm a little offended. You told me I had to Google Eminem songs, and uh, that's not the this case at all. So Probably the, the first CD I ever burned. The number one track was Hot in Here by Nelly. The number two track, Without Me by Eminem. Oh, so yeah. I'll go with it without me. No one said the. Oh, I thought everyone was going to say Lose Yourself. Lose Yourself. Absolutely. That's a great one. My favorite is one of the, oh, yeah, the very most popular time. song. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, real Slim Shady. Come on, there's a lot. But um, Stan, Stan was one of the great videos of all time. Just a great, great song. You remember Stan, right? Cleaning out my closet. Yep. Yeah. Stan was awesome. Headlights, headlights. I think that's the one that his mom sued him for. It's a, it's actually, you know, I'm an artist and, a, and a, you know, appreciation for the human spirit. That was a very moving way for an artist to tell his own pain and story. So he's got Absolutely. some depth to him. All right, Tina, Katie, we're going to go back to you. Name your favorite. Let's see. Any, any, is Eminem hip hop? I guess he kind of is. Name your favorite hip hop song of all time. Hip hop. I am not a hip hop gal. Name a song. Any Name song. song. <laughs> Tell us something. Oh, I'll any song. Favorite. How about a song by a Canadian artist? Who's your favorite? Canadian. Canadian artist? Uh-huh. Oh, there's so many. I don't know how to choose. But tragically, I think Wilson, Wilson Phillips is a Canadian. No, they're from California. I oh, then never mind. <laughs> Close, so enough. Close enough. Wilson Phillips is a, a band I like. Yeah, they're Brian Wilson like. and China and uh what's his name? Phillips from the, the Mamas and the Papas. Yeah. They're 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 da- they're daughters of famous uh California musical artists. What yes. about the guy that sings blurred lines? Isn't yes. that uh Robin Thicke? Yeah. Adam Thicke. Yeah, he's he's in trouble too. Yeah. So. Robin Thicke, he's canceled too. Yeah. Oh, well, well, that'll be a tease for our next legal grab bag. So a big mm-hmm. thanks to David Yep and Katie Maris for joining us here on the Legal Grab Bag on our Legal Face Off podcast. Another big thanks to our earlier guests, David Sussler, Andrew Willinger, and Professor Rachel Barkoff of NYU. For well, our producers, we got, we got a couple. We got a couple of plugs. First of all, Katie, you got to plug your book, right? Yeah, I can totally do that. I, I have a. Sorry to cut you off, Joe. No, it's fine. Sorry, Katie. Copy here. Oh, it's this lovely blurred screen. Oh, uh, you got the background. There, there it is. You go. There you go. There we go. <laughs> Customer experience. Where can people find it, Katie? Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere where books are sold. Went to number one. It's super exciting. So, number one bestseller. Really oh, exciting. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. We'll look for number two. And then, of course, look for our Surma event. The Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance tomorrow at Wrigley Field, two o'clock. A lot of our friends from Legal Face Off will be there, including uh, our lead sponsor, David Yep from Triune. Right, David. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for your generosity, and uh, back to you, Joe. All right. Another big thanks to our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face Off podcast. Please do us a favor and give us five stars as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a few weeks on the Legal Face Off podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.